Well, good evening. Uh, welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan. Uh, if you don't know me, come and say hi after church. I'd love to catch up with you, uh, hear a bit of your story. Uh, it'd be great to meet you. Uh, well, tonight, we get the privilege of sitting underneath God's Word. We get to hear Him as Vanessa's just read it to us and think through what happened 3,000 years ago and how that applies to us. And it's my hope that tonight, as we hear what happened this 3,000 years ago, we would see the reason for both great joy and great fear. Why don't we pray together? Lord, as we have heard you speak through the way that you have acted throughout history, through what is recorded in your scriptures, we pray that tonight, by your spirit, that you would help us to understand you and you would help us to respond to you in the way that is fitting and right for the God who made us and loves us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question this evening. Uh, what difference to your life would it make if you knew the future? What difference to your life would it make if you knew the future? Let's think about that for a moment. If you knew what was going to happen, I'd imagine it would make life a fair bit more comfortable. I don't know how many of you have already invested in shares and bought stocks and houses knowing the future, and that's going to go great for us, right? We're going to know where to invest. And, and money should be easy to come by because well, we know how things are going to turn out. Uh, there's a sense in which knowing the future would be something that would be great, that we aspire to, that we long for, right? But knowing the future might also bring stress with it, might it not? Imagine seeing a future and not being able to do anything about changing it. Can you imagine that? A life lived with your destiny set knowing what would happen next and knowing that there's nothing you can do to change what would happen or determine, to, or to determine your place in it. It would be a life that could be haunted by the picture of the future. However, as we come to the pages of the Bible, of the Scriptures, we hear the claim that you can know your future. You can know your future. And not only can you know your future, but that your actions now towards the one who is bringing in that future determine what it will look like for you. We can know our future and we can change to determine whether we are part of that great future that is offered to us. I want to show you that. We're going to flick to the end of the Bible, but it'll be on the screen so you don't have to flick through all your pages and have a look at the picture of the future that is painted for us by a man named John who was a follower of Jesus. He says this, in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven, which is like a new sky, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look! God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief and crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. What a phenomenal picture of the future. My guess is, as you hear that, that sounds attractive to you. It sounds like something that you want to be part of, something you want to experience. 
He may have come along here tonight, uh, not as a Christian, not as someone who trusts Jesus. My hunch is that if, if you actually thought that this was true, if this could actually happen, it'd be something that you'd want to be a part of, knowing the God who made you, having all of our pain and tears and mourning and grief wiped away and looking forward to a future forever, a, a new earth, without its struggles and tragedies. This is the picture that God gives us. And there's one aspect of that picture that God has for us that the passage that Vanessa read for us tonight brings into a very clear focus. It's the picture of a new Jerusalem. And those who trust in Jesus look forward to a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 2 of Revelation 21. And the picture of the future that God has laid out for us is based on God's promises of a new city, a city of God that would be brought down for heaven, a new Jerusalem. And that city is a new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem that we're going to hear about today in David's conquest, but a new Jerusalem. But before we understand the new Jerusalem, we need to know some of the old. 3,000 years ago, at the time of David, Jerusalem was a city inhabited by the people called the Jebusites. They've all got awesome names, right? Jebusites, Amalekites, everyone's like Titan Kite. This is what they do. They were the inhabitants of the land. And the reason that the Jebusites were still in Jerusalem was the failure of the Israelites. So God had sent the Israelites in the end of Judges to drive out all the inhabitants of the land he promised his people. But they didn't do it. Not completely. They were never able to do it. They didn't follow God's command. Then, after 15 years of hiding in caves, being chased by Saul, David has just become king. We heard about it last week as we saw that whole history leading up to that point. And David's first action over all Israel, as he's become king of Israel, is doing what Israel had previously failed to do. He took Jerusalem. He set it up as the centerpiece in the kingdom of God, Israel in their land, the blessing of all nations seems to be coming to this nation. We hear in chapter 5, the chapter before Vanessa just read, that the the king of Tyre, a neighboring country, um, was so kind of enamored with what was going on in Israel and with David as a king that he wanted to send help. He sent workers to help David build his house in Jerusalem. He'd seen the power of this king David and his God and wanted part of that. And so David accepted the cedar woods that were sent and the workers, and they built this this new house for David. The blessing of the nations around them. The nations are beginning to be blessed like Abraham had promised. But unlike the new Jerusalem, where the mourning and crying and pain and brokenness is done away with, David's Jerusalem, even at this point, had hints of trouble to come. Did you see them? Have you heard of them? The need for a new Jerusalem is hinted at even at the very start as David moves into this new city. His involvement with the king of Tyre begins here, but it would not end here. The king of Tyre would still be around when David's son Solomon would become king. And as Solomon, in his biggest failure of life, intermarried with the nations around them, you can be dead certain that the nations around them were the nation of Tyre. The nation that David had invited in as he took over Jerusalem. Now, this nation who wanted a king like all the other nations around them, had a king from the other nations. 
who was living amongst them, who was in their midst. And that would cause some of the undoing of this city. The cracks had begun. But the great strength of the king was the great strength of the city of Jerusalem. David had come in and he knew what his purpose was. He was under no illusion who made him king and who was in control. And he was under no illusion of what his purpose was. Look at 2 Samuel 5 verse 12. It's on the screen. Then David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Do you see that? David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. It was nothing to do with what he did. David knew God had put him in that place and he knew his purpose too. He had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David existed as a servant. He existed to serve the people he was leading. Not to be served like a king, like all the nations around them, but to give up his life to serve the people that God had put him over. He sounds like another king who would come who would be a better and brighter David. In fact, he was David's great-great-great-grandchild, Jesus Christ. He came, as Jesus said in his own words in Mark 10, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The king God installs is the king who serves his people. And that's exactly what David did. The importance of Jerusalem was that that city had a king who was the king God chose. Jerusalem was the city of David. Jerusalem would be the city of Jesus as well. Have a look at this. Hebrews 12, 22, we see that the new Jerusalem is the city of Jesus. Look at this. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. The new Jerusalem that's promised in Revelation 21 would come about because of David's grandson, Jesus. And that new Jerusalem will be centered not around David, not around a physical place, but around a person. Jesus Christ, God's King. However, the greatness of David's kingdom needs to be seen for what it was like at that time. And the Bible keeps this frank honesty about what's going on. I love it. It doesn't make the world look better. I don't know if you have this tendency. I have a tendency in my eagerness to show people new things, to talk about them in maybe a little bit brighter light than they actually are. Do you ever find yourself overselling and under-delivering? Is that you or are you an under? Who's, who's an overseller? Oh, show of hands. Oh, there's a few of us. We can have a little meeting outside later and chat about it. Who of us is like an underseller where we always like, oh, glass is totally half empty. It'll be horrible. This part will be yuck. Let's never go. Who's, who's more on that camp? Yeah, you guys are constantly surprised, aren't you? That's Sarah in our marriage. She's like, oh, it'll never work. Then it works. She's like, oh, see, it's great. <laughs> I'm like, how can you live such a depressing life? There's good things that happen. <laughs> Insight into our marriage right there. What we see here is that the Bible tells it as it is. It doesn't go, whoa, this is all great. Everything's all, all brilliant. This Jerusalem that David is in is, is fantastic. But it shows us the problem. At the very point where we've been shown the greatness of David, we see this indication of the weakness that will undermine the city. Look at verse 
13 of chapter 5. After David arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Does something stand out as odd to you as you read that? After he arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now, there's no comment here about having multiple wives, but there's a picture here of a guy who's just after more and more sex. He's after concubines. And you're like, what, what is a concubine? Was kind of like a, uh, like a girlfriend on the side while you had wives as well. And you're like, this is not right. And the key word in there that should have rung all of our ears either are the two words David took. We've heard those words before somewhere. Do you remember when, when Samuel warned the Israelites many years earlier about the ways of a king? When the Israelites wanted a king like the nations around them, he warned them and said, if you have a human king, he will take your food. He will take your men into battle. He will take, he will take, he will take. And this day, David took. And what he took adds to the disturbing nature of it. More concubines and wives. And the fact that they were from Jerusalem, we kind of go, oh, that's all right. They were from God's people. But no, remember, I think he's saying they were from the Jebusites who were in Jerusalem. The seeds of Solomon's downfall can be seen in the reign of David. Even though he was the king in God's heart, he would not be the king that this Jerusalem needed or the world needed. Old Jerusalem, the city of David, despite his greatness, would also be the place of David's failure as well. Just as the Bible will come to look forward to a new and better David, so we who trust in the promises of God look forward to a new and better Jerusalem where God will make all things new. I'm going to just stop at this point and ask, as we see the fractures happening in this city of Jerusalem, is the new Jerusalem, the city gathered around Jesus, is that your hope? Is that the future that you look forward to? When you wake up each day, are you like, I am looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back and he puts all things right and death and mourning and crying and pain are all done away with and people are worshipping God as God. Is that what delights you? Looking forward to that day. A real city where God himself finally rules. If Jesus is your king, if you have put your trust in in him to say he's the one I follow then that is your future. That is the certain hope that you have. That is the picture of what is to come. And you can be guaranteed that with every picture, it only displays half of the greatness of the reality. No mind can comprehend what God has prepared for those who love Him. But we must recognize that if Jesus is the King of this new Jerusalem, that it matters how we treat Him. It matters how we treat him then, and it matters how we treat him now. And that's what this next section of 2 Samuel is all about, how we treat the one who rules. Come with me and have a look at the victory God makes so we understand who this God is. The victory of God. David then pursues the Philistines. It's this crazy tale where he kind of chases after them and he inquires of God, what should I do here? How should I take them out? Shall I do it the same way I did last time? And God says, no, no, no. Just go along and wait in the trees until the moment when you hear in the trees the noise of great marching. David's like, what? I don't know if you've listened to trees lately. I don't know if anyone here is a tree listener. 
kind of go out there and you listen to the sounds of the rustle of the leaves. They don't sound like marching. They don't sound like an army. But God is saying on this day that they had to creep up on the Philistines and God will confuse and bamboozle and overwhelm the whole Philistine army and nation. And they will hear the sound of soldiers in the trees. They didn't have jet planes then. But there's some fear, an army in the sky. What is going on? That's exactly what happens that day. God wins the battle. The Philistines, they've got no idea what's going on. And the Israelites, they just stand there. The Philistines kind of run. And on that day, there's this double defeat. God hands the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites. God saves his people. And at the same time, the Israelites capture their idols. They, they take them away. The Philistines, they, their idols were their gods, the ones that they thought brought them hope and prosperity. They, they, the Israelites go in and they take them all away. They are stripped of their gods. And what's going on here should again make our ears ring of what happened in 1 Samuel 4. Do you remember the story when the Philistines attacked Israel? They defeated Israel and they took the Ark of the Covenant. The, the thing that the Israel took in to battle with them as their kind of, not idol, but the place where God dwelt. They took the Ark of the Covenant away. They captured Israel's God. It was said then in 1 Samuel 4, listen to what happened. 1 Samuel 4, 22, the glory has departed from Israel because the Ark of God has been captured. Those troubles of the ark being captured had led to Israel asking for a king. But now in this defeat of the Philistines and the capturing of their false gods, God is showing who the real king is. He is no mere king like the nations around them over a little area. He is the God over all gods, the ruler over all nations. He is in control of everything. He's the God of armies, the God of the universe. These events show with stunning clarity that while we wait for the new Jerusalem, while we face the enemies of God. What Paul says in Romans 8.31 is absolutely true. If this God is for us, then who can be against us? If the God who made the universe is for us and shown us his love, then while we go up and down in the ebbs and flows of life, who can be against us? Who can take away that future that is promised? What a great God we have. What an amazingly powerful God we have. And so at this point, David and all of Israel celebrate the glory of God. They praise him. They have this great celebration, the God who has won the victory. In 6 verse 1, Shazam, this is what happens. David kind of gathers together 30,000 people. 30,000 of them. This is more than they have ever had before in any battle. And they then go and get the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, and they raid it. They bring it back into Israel. In this great moment of celebration, there's singing and dancing. Everyone's excited. Indiana Jones isn't even there, right? Okay, thanks. That's enough of the music. Now, show of hands, who knew what that music was? Yeah, who didn't? Okay, movie night at someone's house, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, fantastic movie, released in 1981, the year of my birth, best year ever. Anyway. (laughs) But previously, every time David had gone into battle, there were less troops than the 30,000. And now he gathers together 30,000 of the Israelite troops. He takes them on a grand scale to bring in this Ark of the Covenant. 
What David's doing is the most important thing that had happened since the day that he was anointed king over Israel. This was it. See, the ark, it was, the, it was, it was a symbol of the relationship between God and his people. And that's why it was called the ark of the covenant. Now, a, a covenant is really just a promise between two people. It symbolized what God would do for his people and the obligations of the people towards God. Here's a picture of it. Indiana Jones, as he took it, as they raided it. That's not the real one, because the real one doesn't exist anymore, but there it is. Uh, the ark was kind of this gold-plated wooden box. By the way, that's what ark means. Uh, I know some of you think ark is like a boat. The word ark just means box. That's it, box. Okay, so Noah was saved in a box. Uh, this is the box of the covenant. But it's a pretty special box. It's gold-plated everywhere around it. It's about 1.2 meters by 70, uh, 70 centimeters wide. Uh, it's made by the prescription of God when Moses made it uh, through his instructions. It's wooden, but it's plated with gold all over it. And it's got these two seraphim at either end, these kind of solid gold angelic creatures that, that kind of symbolize that God is actually present between those two, said to be his footstool, that God is in the heavens, but the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool on earth. This represents not only God's promise to us or to Israel as his people, but their commitment to follow him. Inside that box are the stone tablets that Moses chiseled out as he wrote the Ten Commandments, as, as God spelt them out on, on Mount Sinai. And on those tablets are written these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the true and living God. And this box, this ark, symbolizes his real presence amongst God's people. And here David, God's king, is bringing God back into the city of Jerusalem to be God with his people living under God's rule. It's, it's a fantastic day. It's a day to celebrate. And you see how different David is from Saul. See, Saul neglected the Ark of the Covenant. That was a reflection of Saul's failure to fear and serve and follow the Lord. He was like, ah, and he let it go and kind of didn't really care about that. But at David's time, he determined that the ark and who it represented should be in its place, in the center of the kingdom. So what they do, they get a brand new cart. They put the ark on the cart. Uh, the sons of Abinadab, a great name if you're looking for a, a name for a dog. Um, <laughs> Abinadab, sit right? Anyway, uh, the sons of Abinadab, the priest, they're walking alongside, guiding this precious cargo. God is on this cart. God's representation is right here. This is his footstool on earth, and they're bringing it, and people celebrate it. Check out the celebration. I think this is fantastic. 2 Samuel 6 verse 5, David and the whole of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, in other words, stringed instruments, uh, lyres and harps, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. There's a lot of banging and clanging and strumming going on. This is like, this is a party. Um, one of the best parties I've ever been to was actually my brother-in-law's wedding. Uh, the reception was a pretty big ordeal. We rocked up. It was like a warehouse. Like, what is this? You know, it's like a warehouse on the street. We walked into the warehouse through this roller door and there was full of old circus equipment like with all fairy lights on it, like a full-on merry-go-round kind of swinging around. It was just there for us to kind of 
play on through this, this reception of a wedding. And then we're all in this, there's nice food around, and then suddenly like these trumpet sound and people come dancing and they're singing this kind of um, crazy out there music. And then in come the bride and the groom on the shoulders of people. Everyone's kind of jumping and moshing. It's like a scene out of Moulin Rouge without the vulgarity. And it's just... It's like amazing. And then this other band come in and they've got this massive euphonium horn and they're like moshing as they're playing. I can imagine that was nothing compared to what this day would have been like. God had come to town. This is a big deal. This is not just some person who's, you know, some celebrity like Adele. She came in a box, wasn't really an ark, but they wheeled her in on a box under the stage. Uh, Imagine for a moment that the queen came tonight. Imagine that she just popped in and and sat down amongst us here. It kind of wouldn't be right, right? There'd be guys with massive big beefeater hat things on standing around. There'd be helicopters. There'd be all sorts of fanfare because she's the queen. Like you can't just walk up to the queen and go, hey, Lizzie, what's been happening? It's not going to work well for you. Well, imagine what it's like when God comes to town. God, the one who made you the one who sustains you, the one who's in control of the universe is being brought in to this Jerusalem. It is definitely something to celebrate. There's this great delight that is expressed in music and song. And it's good to pause right now and recognize that's why Christians are known for singing. We sing because we have a God who has given us so much. We sing about how good he is. We sing to encourage one another and celebrate who he is. So as you come to church, be people who sing. Be people who express yourselves about the greatness of our God. And it doesn't mean we kind of say to people, oh, you know, you're not singing uh, with the right ways or you're not lifting your hands high enough. We, uh, you know, what are you doing clapping on one and three? You always clap on two and four. <laughs> Please work that out. Now, we express that in the way that we are, but we want to express our praise for God. And that's exactly what David does. It's a day of great, great joy. But in the midst of such a joyful celebration, there's a huge shock that comes across this whole fanfare. It leaves the entire celebration stunned silent. And that moment is when the fear of God was reinstated in his people. The fear of God. The fear of God. 2 Samuel 6. 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark of God. Now you read that and if you're like me, you're like, what? What's up with you, God? Like, why why are you so angry at this point? These people were in the middle, middle of celebrating your presence. They, they were trying to do everything they possibly could to praise you and sing about how good you were. And then you, this guy, you know, that the oxen that's pulling the cart, that's pulling God, stumbles and he just reaches out to catch the, the ark, to catch God, to help him out. You know, he's trying to do all that he can to see God praised and celebrated. And then God goes, Psh, die. Does that kind of puzzle you? Well, it wasn't the celebration of God's presence that was the issue here. It wasn't that they were over-celebrating. You don't go, oh, we shouldn't celebrate. We should stand like this as we sing our songs because God doesn't obviously want people to celebrate. That's not what's happening. They did celebrate, but they didn't do it on God's terms. 
they kept treating God like one of the gods of the other nations around them. Right? The idea of carrying an ark on a cart came from the pagan Philistine priests when they kind of were like, well, we don't want this thing amongst us. It's causing all sorts of trouble. And they wanted to send it back to Israel after they'd stolen it because their God was kind of fallen down. Dagon, his temple had been taken out just overnight. And they're like, we don't want this thing. So they built a cart. They put two oxen in the front of it and they sent it back to Israel. And went, you keep this thing. And that's what happened. And, that, and Saul at that point just kept them and didn't do anything with them. They came up with the idea of a cart. God had made it explicitly clear in Numbers 4 that the ark was to be carried by the priests by its poles, carried everywhere it went. It was to be carried. It was to be covered, not laid bare for all to see, not being some spectacle as it came through. God said they must not touch or even look into the holy things of God, including the ark, even for a moment, or they'll surely die. Earlier in 1 Samuel, 70 people looked into the ark of God. And do you know what happened to those 70 people? Dead. All of them. And death is exactly what happened to Uzzah. Why is God so seemingly harsh? Because he needs us to recognize that you do not mess with this God. You cannot take him casually on your own terms. I like to think of God or celebrate God in this way. You can't do that. You can't worship him any way you like. He is like no other. You don't get to set the rules and neither do I. So often we, we domesticate God. We look at his love and we say, God, you are so loving. And we let that diminish his holiness, his perfectness, his unapproachability. The fact that he, he, he speaks and creation comes into being. Who else has power like that? The fact that he is just and he punishes those rightly who rebel against him. It's like we go, oh, it's all right. God won't mind. He loves us. It won't matter if I don't obey him in every area. The story is recorded for us here to be a stark reminder that even when it seems like all is going well, life's trucking along just great. You know, that, that we're praising God. We're glorifying him. His plans are being enacted. We must not slip into complacency. We must not think that we can shape or mold his words to be in line with what we think. We're not at liberty to tone down what he says, to make alterations to his plans and his promises, even if our intentions are good. I don't know if you've had it said to you by others, as long as they've got good motivation, as long as they're doing it out of the right place, as long as they're sincere in what they're trying to do, that's fine. You know, these people, they're sincerely trying to worship God and they've got it totally wrong. But, you know, as long as they were trying to do it right, well, that's not what God says. God says, you worship me on my terms or you die. That might seem harsh to us. That's because we haven't recognized who he is. He made you. He sustains you. You don't get to set the rules. We get to hear what he said. If he's allowed us to continue living, we get to respond rightly to him. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity is is not enough. I, mean, I take it that's why David gets angry. He's not angry at God, but at Uzzah's death, that this has gone on. He works out that he must take God at his word. Look at verse 9. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David began to fear God rightly, to recognize that he is the powerful and almighty God. 
David had known his power. He'd been glad in the past that every time God's terrifying power had been directed against his enemies. He'd been like, he's, he's the man. He's the God. You know, that's who I follow. But today he saw that same power directed against his own people for rejecting him, just like the other nations had done. For that was why they were deserving his justice and judgment. And it put the fear of God into David. At this point, we need to ask one another, how would your life look different if we feared God a little more than we do? What would change in your life if you recognize that God was the God of justice? That he was unapproachable to those who have rejected him? What ways are you guilty of domesticating God? Bringing him down to our level? Expecting him to just let things slide when really the only thing that should happen is death to us? In what ways do you minimize or undermine God's good and right commands? God is unlike any other. We see his character throughout history, that he's a God of mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So if if I've done something wrong and God shows me mercy, he doesn't give me what I do deserve. He's shown us his mercy. The very fact that we are all alive and we've, we've still rejected God and he hasn't killed us right now, is the fact that God is a merciful God. He would have every right to take every single one of our lives right now. But he is a God of mercy. He consistently shows mercy. But sometimes he shows us his justice like that speeding ticket we get, like the ramifications for the times that we've rejected God and there are real consequences and those consequences affect our lives. He is continually showing us mercy. He is sometimes giving us justice. But here's the thing to remember. He will never give us something we don't deserve. He will never give us something we don't deserve. He will never give us some sort of punishment or, or something that, that is too strong or too harsh because he is a God who is just, continually showing mercy, sometimes giving justice, but he will never give us something we don't deserve. Well, three months later, David sees that the ark has brought great blessing to the household that he had it stashed in. And so he tries again, except this time he does it take two on God's terms. Look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel 6. It was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and that all that belongs to him, and sorry, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. But listen to how he did it. When those carrying, no more, no more kind of cart, when those carrying the ark of God advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened the calf and a fattened calf. The two oxes that were leading the cart are now dead. Every six steps, every six steps they take, David says, well, that's enough. Let's kill another calf. Let's, let's sacrifice to our God and recognize that we can only approach God if someone dies. So that, that's what a, a sacrifice was about in that Old Testament sacrificial system. It recognized that when we wrong the God who gives us life, that we deserve death. And so the way they enacted that was to show that if you've wronged God, someone's got to die. And you are saying, God has allowed that his wrath will be poured out on that animal rather than us. 
So every six steps on the way back as they celebrate, they, they sacrifice another ox, another animal to say, man, we are not worthy of you, God. We are celebrating that God is amongst us. It's a huge celebration. But with it comes the reality that you cannot just walk up to God. David and the nation of Israel finally remembered who they were before God and who God was before them. They couldn't approach him with their imperfect, rebellious and broken hearts like ours. Not without the symbol of a death of another in their place. And that day they returned the ark to Jerusalem and they returned joy to Israel. And again, we see the joy that God brings. I want us to look at it again. Look at how David celebrates this time. Verse 14. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. It's the party all over again. Except this time on God's terms. The celebration wasn't the issue. It was the way that they rejected God. And this, this time they're dancing. There's this physical expression of what they're doing. You can feel it in the air. David's excited. He's celebrating. You can tell that he's like, God is in the house. Like it's, he's here. God is here. And the question we need to ask is, when we see the joy of David celebrating God's presence amongst them, do you have that joy? Do you have the joy that comes with knowing that if you trust Jesus, God lives in you by his spirit? Just think about it for a minute. The creator of the universe if you trust in Jesus, lives in you. (laughs) How is that even possible? How is it that God can be in us? How is it that I I I can live and have God in me and he not kill me? Well, it's because of Jesus. It's because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. How do I respond to the fact that God is in in me? With joy, with great celebration. That God is shaping and molding us to be his people because his spirit lives in us. If you trust in Jesus, it's my hope that you've recognized how unapproachable God is to us sinners. And at the same time, you've recognized how amazing it is that sinners like us could have God live within us. Have you felt that thrill, that joy that God has brought us from darkness to life, that we can now approach God and have God in us? If you haven't, then I want to suggest that tonight you come and chat to someone who's a Christian. Come and say, look, how is it that you can be right with God? And ask them to pray with you and ask Jesus to be your king. Have you felt the joy of God living in you? I'm not suggesting at this point we all jump up and dance like David and go a little crazy. That's not kind of the response that necessarily joy looks like. Um, But what we'll see about the response of David right now is something that's very important for us. David's response of joy goes against his culture. It goes against his culture, against the proper protocols of the king. Because God is amongst them, the king, he he strips off his, his royal garments, his pomp and all that kind of stuff that a king would wear, right? And he strips down to what is a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod is what the, the priests who served the people of God, they were servants' clothes. The priests would serve the people by offering the sacrifices and they'd wear this kind of, this kind of just linen schmock. It's kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. it basically, it's underwear. It's like long johns, but a bit, bit kind of floppy, right? And, and here is David kind of praising God in servant's clothes, in a servant's outfit. You're like, what? 
Some people kind of go, look, David's just being a show pony. He's so excited. He's so ecstatic. We should get so excited and ecstatic about God. We strip down to our underwear and dance around, right? No. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a number of no's there. <laughs> no, what he's doing is not being a show pony. He's humbling himself to recognize that he is merely a servant of the real king, God. That once God is in Jerusalem, the real king has arrived. And David is just celebrating as one who serves that king, God, and his people. How do you celebrate the goodness of God? You join with others and serve one another, trusting in God's promises. Trusting that God is with us. The only attitude to have toward our God is one of humility. David celebrated, but not everyone agreed with David's celebration. Mikael, you remember her? The woman who cost 200 Philistine foreskins. She's an expensive woman. She was Saul's daughter. And Saul, uh, after David had brought 200 Philistine foreskins, went, no, you can't have it, and gave it to someone else to be their wife. And David never had received her until when David became king, he went back to that guy and said, step off, she's mine. He took her back. And she came with him. And you can imagine it would be a good thing. She loved him originally. In fact, she's the first person, the first wife in the Bible to, be ever, to have ever said about her that she loved her husband. Now, I imagine they did before that, but she's the first one. And you're like, okay, there's probably something good going on. But anyway, she, she sees what David is doing. She's looking through a window. And you're like, why is she looking through a window? Why isn't she down there with them celebrating? What's she, what's she doing back at, back at home? She's looking through this window at the celebration of David, and she's embarrassed. The last time that it recorded that Michal was looking through a window, it was to save David from her father, and she loved him. But now it seems like she's wanting to be more like her father than David. She's more concerned with her own praise than the praise of God, her own pomp as the king's wife than the praise of the God who had saved them. That evening, as everyone returns to their homes from celebrating all day, David returns to his and is met with disgust. Before he's even reached the house, she comes out to meet him. You can hear her voice is dripping with sarcasm. Look at verse 20. How the king of Israel honored himself today. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls, of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. She's not very happy. That's my not very happy voice. Pomp and power and position were too important for the daughter of Saul to see the wonder of the God that had saved them. She would not humble herself before this God, nor his people. David knew that before the Lord, there was no place for arrogance, for self-glory, for God was the glorious one. David played to an audience of one, and that was God, not Michal. And so listen to his reply in verse 21. David replied to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. Life is not about us. Life is not about us. It's not about our achievements It's not about our successes. It's not about our position or popularity. Life 
is about recognizing who we are before the Lord. That's exactly what's been on view in every story that we've looked at tonight. It's been on view. Would David recognize that God was God and he wasn't? Would Uzzah recognize that before the Lord, he, shouldn't, he didn't need to save God from falling off a cart? That God was God and he didn't need to do that? Mikael, she, she didn't recognize who she was before the Lord. She only cared about her position and what others looked at when they saw her and how they treated David and they wanted, she wanted David to be king. She didn't care about what she looked at before the Lord. Who are you before our God? When we recognize who God is and who we are, it's an incredibly humbling experience. Verse 23, God humbled Michael. Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. She sought her own legacy, the legacy of position and power for, for, for her king, but no legacy was left for her. No children would even be born to her. And here ends the family line of Saul. The king the people wanted ended. No more children. Done with. Never to be heard of again. Although in the first century, there was another man with the name of Saul, a different man. A man not from that same family line, who had, but he had the same family likeness to the family of Saul. He carried great pride in his family heritage. He, he, his position amongst the religious was something that he prided himself in. His actions before God and for God was something that he saw as so important. But God in his mercy humbled this man Saul and he became Paul. He humbled him so he might recognize that God the Son made flesh is the promised King Jesus. He humbled him to recognize who he was before Jesus. The scales fell from his eyes and his life's goal became to speak of what so many would call foolishness. But he now saw as the wisdom and power of God. How humbling that must have been. He preached Jesus Christ. And him crucified. The greatest person to ever walk the earth. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified was the greatest act of God the Son taking the punishment for us so that we could be declared right with God. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified was the one to be worshipped as God and he became a laughingstock. But God said and showed that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the power and wisdom of God. If Paul's conclusions about Jesus are true, what this means is that nothing could be more foolish in life than a casual attitude towards Jesus Christ. To reject him or despise him or even just ignore Jesus uh, is to make an extraordinarily large mistake that will cost you life itself. If we claim to follow Jesus but take him for granted, caring little about his perfection, his power, then we will regret such a casual attitude. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Speaking of Jesus. As you meet Jesus, you meet God. Look at verse 16, Colossians 1. For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him and through him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. 
If death came to Uzzah for treating the symbol of God's presence wrongly, imagine what will come to those who reject God the Son himself. We cannot reject this God. We cannot take him too casually. We cannot approach him on our own terms. For he is God. Jesus is God. But we can be sure of this. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. There is hope of the future if we trust in this Jesus. He is the God that is worthy of our celebration. He's, he is worthy of, he's worthy of humbling ourselves before him. Not worrying about the, what the world around us thinks about our position, about our pride, about our security, about our comfort. He is worthy of us celebrating his presence. That we broken and rejectful sinners can have relationship with God because of the work of Jesus. David says to Michael, I will continue to humble myself before the Lord. I will continue to be small before my God. I will continue to celebrate before my God on his terms for his glory. I will celebrate my King. The question for us is, will you celebrate King Jesus? Will you humble yourself before him? Will you live your life, not caring what the world around you think, but trusting that Jesus is the promised king who has offered you the future that can never perish, spoil or fade, that new Jerusalem where we can be right with God forever? Let's pray. Father, tonight, we want to thank you so much that you don't treat us as we deserve, but you've shown your love for us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us this very evening to see Jesus as he is, to recognize that we can't approach you just on our own terms, but to see the hope of the gospel, where Jesus has paid the price as that sacrificial bull and, and ox that we might approach you and be called forgiven and your children. Father God, you are holy. You are so different. And so we pray this day you would help us to live for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.